0: Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. You know, every week I work with the production team behind the cameras to figure out who would be a great guest this week, to complement your needs, to build your brand, build your company's brand, how to make sure that your leadership skills are being developed, to build your culture, to make sure your career is blossoming. This is about, gosh, into our second year now, Nearly our 60th interview, we've had some amazing interviews with Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, Stephen M. R. Covey, General Stanley McChrystal, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Nancy Duarte, the list goes on and on, Susan Cain. Just a few weeks ago, we interviewed our CEO, Bob Whitman, an amazing insight into his own leadership journey. Today's guest will not disappoint. I am delighted to introduce the famed author, multiple best-selling author, Thought Leader Expert keynote speaker, Donald Miller, whose recent book, Building a Story Brand, is joining us here live from his office. Welcome, Donald Miller. Great to be here. Hey, I hear you're joining us from Nashville. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Nashville,
1: Tennessee. In fact, our office is right on Music Row, so all down the street here is uh, country music is being created and right in the middle of that, we're helping businesses. So, but we
0: like where we are, it's you fun. Know, Nashville is arguably like the biggest up and coming city in the nation. I think Nashville gets more press than any city right now in the US. What do you think's happening there that's making it blossom so big?
1: Well, a lot of it has to do with the tax code and and the fact (laughs) that businesses can really thrive here. I know that uh, I saved so much money in taxes when I moved here from Portland, Oregon, I was able to hire two new full-time people just with my small company. So a lot of it is that, but there's 800,000 people moving here in the next 10 years. And you're an hour and a half flight from 85% of the population of the United States. That's why FedEx, hubs yeah. in memphis yeah and why so much is happening in nashville and here's a secret it's even why country music took off here because you could get on a tour bus and overnight be at uh, you know a hundred different venues where you could have thousands of people there to hear you play so that's why country music took off in nashville tennessee and it's why business is booming here
0: what a great endorsement i hope everybody is the same evangelist of their city as you are to nashville Donald, thank you for joining us today. We've got about a half an hour to get as much of your genius out of you for everyone who's watching, thinking about how to build their business, how to grow their messaging, connect and focus on their customer. Before I go to the essence of your most recent book, I'd love it if you take a minute and kind of walk through a bit of your journey. How did you build the expertise, the confidence, the client base to become arguably one of the nation's, the world's chief experts on building a solid brand?
1: Well, I think like most people watching or listening, uh, it was purely accidental. I just kept chasing things that I was curious about. When I was young, I wanted to be a writer. I actually wrote down uh, in, in high school my goals. And by the time I was 35, I wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author and was able to do that. And in order to, to uh, write good books and keep the page turning, I studied story because story is the most powerful tool to compel human brains. We we all pay attention to story like nothing else. And then uh, about the time it was time for me to write my eighth memoir, I decided, you know, if you write your eighth memoir, you're probably a clinical narcissist. So I backed off. I said, I think it's time to pivot. I wanted to help other people tell their stories. And StoryBrand, the company, came out of that. And so now we help about 3,000 companies a year clarify a message so that people will listen to them but it's all the same framework I was using as a memoirist and to write screenplays and write movies. I'm just having a lot more fun doing it because some of these companies are, they're just struggling so much. And the problem is not with their people. It's not with their product. It's literally how they are positioned in the marketplace and it's not a very complicated problem to fix. It just takes, you know, some hours of sitting down saying, who are we, who is our customer, and how can we invite them into a story that helps them win? You answer those few questions, and then you start populating that message into marketing collateral, and you get massive returns.
0: Don, we're going to move to your seven-part framework here in just a few minutes, so I want to say some of that. But you talk a lot about the power of story to kind of cut through the clutter and the noise that's in our life. I've heard you say, I think there is over 3,000 commercial commercial messages we're faced with every day, and you liken you know, most people's brand I think you call it a cat chasing a rat in a wind chime factory, that most of <laughs> our websites and keynotes and corporate brochures are just noise. What, what insight would you give to us to how most organizations' brand is just noise, It can become more organized around a story. Why is that so important? Well, to
1: understand why it's important, you have to understand what's happening in the human brain. The human brain, the, the primary job of the human brain is to keep you alive. Every customer that you have, their their, their brain is doing one thing. It's scanning the world for information that will help them survive or thrive. And if we go back to Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we know it starts with food and shelter, moves on to relationships, and it gets more complicated from there. There's not a product that anybody listening has that doesn't somehow help somebody survive in the sense that it can save them money, make them money, organize their time, give them access, gain them status. Those are all survival mechanisms. So if we have marketing messages and brand messages that don't help people survive in some way that they can't directly relate to their own survival, people will discard or delete those messages from their brain. They will ignore them. So of the 3,000 commercial messages that we all hear every day, there's probably one or two that we're actually paying attention to. And those one or two, which is less than 1%, obviously – Uh, They're doing something to immediately associate their customer's survival with their product. That's the first thing the brain is trying to do. The second thing the brain is trying to do is conserve calories. It actually takes a lot of calories to process information. And you know that if you just process any bit of information, it exposes you to danger in the sense that if I walk into a Starbucks and I pick up a pound of coffee and I'm wondering about how the packaging works and did they glue this or whatever, Uh, uh, three hours later, if I'm still standing there studying this pound of coffee, uh, I'm not gonna be able to feed myself within a few months because my brain is not telling me what information to throw away and what information to keep. And so the, the key to all messaging and marketing is to associate your products with the survival of your customer and do so in such simple, easy language Nobody has to burn any calories to understand it. You know, I've gone around the country and and spoken to thousands of people now. I'll often ask them, what did Jeb Bush want to do with America? And they don't know. I've I've never gotten a single answer from the hundreds of thousands of people that I've spoken to. But when I say, what did Donald Trump want to do with America? They say, make America great again. You know, regardless of where you are politically, that's a lesson for us. And that a simple message will beat a complicated message almost every time. And a simple message about the betterment of the customer is going to beat a simple message about how we are great as a brand. It's all gotta be about the customer and the customer survival. So our brand messages need to be about our customer survival, and they need to be so short and simple and easy to understand and even repeat that nobody has to burn any calories to understand them. We're at a race, we're in a race with our competition, not just to create great products, but to communicate about those products in such a way that nobody has to really think to understand what is in it for them.
0: Don, the book is so well written, so well organized. You've got some great stories in here. I I, I think my, my favorite one is one early on where you talk about, I think you were holding a work session with some potential clients and you had one customer in there that owned a fairly complicated business and didn't think the story structure would work for him, would you take a minute and just kind of walk through that story, I think it was a paint customer, because I will never forget it, it was visceral in terms of where you took, you know, their sort of complex messaging, and, and don't clean it up, talk straight, <laughs> because I think it was such a great story for everybody who has brand responsibility or every company owner.
1: Well, you know, we, we review a lot of websites as part of, of looking at marketing collateral as we help you clarify your message. And uh, this gentleman had a $10 million company. He was, you know, he was doing pretty well, but $10 million and he's spending $9.5 million, right, to keep it going. And when I went to his marketing pay or his website, you know, it had a, It looked like actually an Italian restaurant. And he's, this is a guy who sells industrial paint. He'll paint a hospital. He'll paint, uh, you know, a, a commercial building, those kinds of things. And he had his, his website looked like he uh, was an Italian restaurant. He had paragraphs about the charities that they supported. He talked about how his grandfather started the company. Uh, it took me even a minute just to figure out that he did painting at all. Now, not all of us are making mistakes that are that big, but we think we're doing better than we are. The reality is he could have made a lot more money if he would have just put on that website. We paint all sorts of ish. I'll just say ish. And then, uh, you know, uh, schedule an appointment or schedule a consultation or or something like that, Uh, because then I would know actually what he does. He paints things. And you would be shocked at how many uh, companies are talking all about themselves, but they're not explaining clearly what's in it for the customer. Uh, It's not rocket science to figure out, but some of us are so close to our own message that we're using such inside language, it's not working out. I like to say every time you hand somebody a piece of information, you're handing them an eight pound bowling ball. And if you hand them too much information, it's literally like handing them too many bowling balls. They will drop them all. And so you've got to be very careful about how you piecemeal information to your clients. And everything has to be associated with their survival. If you use inside language, it's like taking a bowling ball and wrapping it in Vaseline and handing it to somebody. They can't get purchase on it and they drop it. The reality is people are bouncing off our websites. They're listening to our sales pitches. They're listening to our elevator pitches. They're reading our sales proposals, which most of them, 90% of these sales proposals, Scott, are horrible. The very first page of the sales proposal talks all about you and the company and doesn't talk about the problem that the customer is trying to solve. The very first page of that sales proposal should say, if I've heard you correctly, here's your problem. Here's the climactic scene that you're supposed to you're 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 wanting to experience, and here's my plan to help you experience that climactic scene. And our products fit into that plan. That's the formula for a sales proposal that works.
0: Don, I was uh, interviewing Guy Kawasaki a few episodes ago, right? The, sort of the famed evangelist from Apple, best-selling author, and he shared some great stories around the inside mechanics of brand management at Apple with Steve Jobs and. Tim Cook and others, and although I don't think you worked at Apple, you share some enormously practical insights from looking at how Apple does things. And I want to quote your book. You say, people don't buy the best products. They buy products they can understand the fastest. And you weren't dissing Apple's products per se. Would you share with everybody your insight around how Apple did such an amazing job at making their products the easiest to understand, therefore the easiest to buy and adopt?
1: Well, Steve Jobs, early on in the 80s, you know, he co-founded Apple. The company did well. Then they got into some trouble, and they were on the brink of bankruptcy. And he wanted to bring the company back with a computer called Lisa. It was a pet project for him. He really loved it. He was, he was a tech geek, if you will. He was obsessed with uh, a computer becoming a household item, which, of course, it wasn't at the time. And they released Lisa. There were a number of problems with the product. It was very expensive. People couldn't figure out why they needed it. Well, he released it with a nine-page ad in the New York Times spelling out all the technical features and details of that product. Now, Scott, if you think about what we've talked about in the last 10 minutes, you know that that ad is going to fail, and it certainly did. Lisa bombed. People didn't buy it. Only people from NASA bought it. And the medical community for image scanning, that was the primary point of their sales. That was it. People couldn't figure out what was in it for them, how this product was going to help them survive. And nine pages of technical data, that's too many bowling balls. So uh, he was never fired from Apple, but he was put in a building by himself. So you and I both know if the board puts us in a building by ourselves, the the writing is on the wall. It's time for us to go. He left. Unfortunately, he sold his shares, which is why he did not uh, pass as a wealthy man like, uh, like Bill Gates or as wealthy of a man. Uh, He started the company next, and then he bought into a hardware company called Pixar. This was not a movie studio. Pixar was a hardware company owned by George Lucas, and they were doing some experimentation with uh, CGI graphics. He bought that company, and with it bought a man named John Lasseter. And John Lasseter ended up making a Listerine commercial using these computers. That was the first time Steve Jobs had made any money in 10 years. And he said, you got to keep making these cartoons so that I can afford to keep buying more hardware and building this company. Well, they made a thousand uh, commercials and then uh, Disney came to them and said, we've got a script called Toy Story. And they made Toy Story and suddenly Steve Jobs was CEO and controlling owner of the most powerful storytelling company, I believe, since the days of Shakespeare. They are unbelievably good. And he learned some things. He learned to keep it simple. He learned to always make it about the hero's journey. He he learned to paint a climactic scene and have no text in that entire script that doesn't serve the climactic scene. He learned to organize his thinking into clear uh, little chunks that keep the audience enthralled and engaged. He brought back that mind to Apple when he came back to Apple, and he changed nine pages in the New York Times to two words, think different, he stopped selling computers and he started selling an aspirational identity that you could become if you bought his computers that revolutionized the messaging from Apple. And of course, now they're one of the largest companies in the world, If they're careful. They they're, they're, they're going to get away from that simplicity. But what Steve jobs learned at Apple was simple, 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 keep it simple. Don't make the customer think Uh, you want to initiate a, a primitive response from the customer to make them want that thing, and he figured out how to do it, and this, the rest is history.
0: Don, you also talk a lot about how the story really isn't about your brand. It's about the customer. They are central to it. Why do you think so many chief marketing officers and vice presidents of sales are so focused on wanting to tell their story and push it on their client as opposed to helping the client understand? what their problem is and is it our egos? It seems like it's like always, everyone struggles with the same problem. They hire you or someone else like you and they realize, oh, it isn't about us, it's about them.
1: Right, the, and the key is the customer is the hero. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily an insecurity or about our ego. I think we actually feel like we have to sell ourselves and we don't. What we have to do is solve the customer problems. So we have to figure out what the customer's story is and help them find a climactic scene in that story. You don't want to play the hero in the story. You want to play the guide. The guide is a character in the story that helps the hero win. Yoda is the guide. Luke Skywalker is the hero. Hey, Matt, hey Mitch is the guide. Katniss is the hero. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the King's speech, uh, I believe it's Daniel is the guide, and King George is the hero. Uh, In Karate Kid, Daniel is the hero. Mr. Miyagi is the guide. The guide is the the strongest character in the story. The two reasons you never want to play the hero are, one, the hero is weak. The hero is scared, doesn't know if they can get the job done, ill-equipped and unwilling to take action. The guide has already conquered the hero's problem, has already experienced a climactic scene themselves, and can get the hero to the win. And so when you position yourself as the hero, you know, in politics, Hillary Clinton did it. She said, I'm with uh, her campaign slogan was I'm with her. Well, if she's with, if we're with her, she's the hero. If she would have changed that to she's with us, she would have done a lot better because people couldn't find themselves in her story. What am I going to get out of this? She was basically just saying, will you help me be president rather than if I'm president, I will help you lower taxes or whatever. And Mm -hmm. tons of our companies are doing this. We're positioning as the hero and the, the, this, the, literally the customer saying, that's great that you're a hero. Your story is really interesting. Uh, I'd love to hear more about it later. Would you mind stepping aside? I'm looking for a guide. So in the book, I walk you through how not to play the hero and what customers are actually looking for in a guide. And it gets a primitive response from customers. They click buy now very quickly.
0: I think in our firm, we make some of the same challenges. We're so excited about our legacy, our reputation, some of the successes we've had, the breadth of all of our offerings, our global reach, and sometimes we also trip up on speaking the language in what our client's dealing with, right? We sometimes fail to make our client the hero versus us the hero.
1: That's absolutely it. Nobody wants to buy, you know, if if you're talking about your company's global reach and and the the obvious wonderful uh, sort of lineage that your intellectual property comes from, that's really the authority that you have to solve the customer's problem, but nobody's buying your company's global reach. They're buying a solution to their execution problem. Right. Right. And so you want to talk more about you guys are having trouble getting the ball into the end zone and we can help you get the ball into the end zone uh, very easily. Uh, That makes me want to call you and say, help me get the ball into the end zone. When, if you say we're we're on, you know, this many continents and then this many countries, that's not a bad thing to say. It tells me you know how to get the ball in the end zone for a lot of people. But if you if you say that at the expense of saying you can help me with execution, I'm not going to purchase anything from you because really what I'm buying is help and execution, not the global reach of your company.
0: Right on, Don. Uh, so true. Let's talk about the seven part framework of story brand. I'm going to pitch you, if you don't mind, the seven parts in order. And would you give yeah. us a minute or two on each and kind of uh, dive deep on that? The first part is a character. The customer is the hero, not your brand. You spoke about that, but, but what are some practical tips on how everyone listening can move their mindset from their brand as the hero to the customer as a hero?
1: Well, every story starts with a character that wants something, and that something has to be very clearly defined. So if the customer is the hero, we have to clearly define something that the hero wants. Now, a great way to ruin a story is to make the hero want too many things. If Jason Bourne wants to know who he is, uh, he also wants to lose 30 pounds, he'd like to marry the girl, he wants to run a marathon, and he's thinking about adopting a cat. That story is about too many things, and you're asking the audience to burn too many calories processing the information. They will check out, or they'll fall asleep, or they'll just walk out of the movie. If you hit your customers with the 53 things that you offer, you're going to lose them you have to find an umbrella offering that everything under that umbrella is something that, that your revenue stream provides that they want. So Dave Ramsey has uh, yeah, he's one of our clients. He has a bunch of books, he has conferences, he has radio shows, but he really offers one thing. He offers financial peace Right. and everything that he offers fits under that financial peace. So the key with defining what your character wants is finding the thing that you can offer that everybody understands very quickly. If I want this thing, I go to this person. If you have 30 things, uh, they're not going to remember you in the Rolodex of their brain at all. You've got to really uh, solidify it down to one thing.
0: Don, let's move to the second part, because I think this one is especially insightful. So number one is, you know, you have a character. The second, the character has a problem. Companies tend to sell products to external problems, but customers buy solutions to internal problems. Unwrap that for us. Well, in a
1: screenplay and in in just good marketing advice and good branding, uh, you got to understand as soon as you solve the problem, the story's over. So if Liam Neeson finds out his daughter wasn't kidnapped and she is actually looking forward to them doing some shopping and you have 90 minutes of them shopping and there's no problem, people are going to wonder why they're in this movie. The problem is the attraction or the magnetism that makes you pay attention. If you want your customers to pay attention, you need to define their problem and you need to never stop talking about it. It's the thing that attracts them to you. The only reason they're calling your sales reps back is because they're trying to solve a problem. The only reason they're going to your website is because they're trying to solve a problem. Now, if you talk about that problem in vague language and in 50 different ways, you're doing the same thing that we did earlier. You're throwing too many bowling balls at people. It needs to be a clear problem. You will only be remembered for solving one problem and you've got to be able to clearly articulate that problem. Now, there's an external problem that we solve. You solve the problem of execution. You help me figure out my execution and how to get the ball into the end zone. But really, customers don't buy the solution to an external problem. They, they buy the solution to the what the external problem is causing, which is my frustration. So if you say, Don, you're losing money every day that you don't execute, and I know it's really frustrating you, I'm actually going to hire you and your facilitators to help me relieve my frustration even more than help me get execution. So if I, if I have a, a toothache, but my face is numb anyway, and I can't feel it, I'm not going to buy medicine, right? I'm only buying medicine to alleviate the frustration that the actual problem is causing. We've got to c- talk about our customers' external problems and their internal problems in very clearly defined language. And we need to repeat that message over and over. That will begin to attract customers to us.
0: Don, we'll keep going. Step one, a character. Two, has a problem. Three, and meets a guide. You mentioned this earlier. Customers aren't looking for another hero. They're looking for a guide. How do you translate that kind of cool metaphor into you know, a practical website design or practical brochure or speech?
1: There are two things that you want to communicate, and those two things position you and your customer's subconscious as a guide the two things are empathy and authority. It's, I care about you. I feel your pain. I understand your problem. And I have the competency to get you out of this problem. Uh, we've helped thousands of clients do this before. Those are the only two things you want to communicate as a guide. You know, if you ask Dave Ramsey, tell me your story. He'll say, easy. I, I was bankrupt because I made stupid financial decisions you know, I read the book of Proverbs, I got wise, I started making great financial decisions, and now I have a plan to get you there too. He didn't tell you his story at all. He didn't tell you he was married, didn't tell you who his kids were, didn't tell you where he went to school. What he did was express empathy and authority. So people say, Don, do you not want us to tell our story? I think you can tell your story, but I only want you to tell two parts of it, empathy and authority as it relates to the customer, and you will position yourself as the guide.
0: And then number four, you move to the guide who gives them a plan. You actually say customers trust a guide who has a plan. I guess that's the natural next step.
1: Yep, that's right. And really what this means is you've got to give a customer a clear path that you offer to solve your problem. And what we love at StoryBrand is three or four steps. It sounds so simple. But if you call me and say, Don, we really want to, we want to work with you guys. Uh, call us and send us a check. We'll, we'll do business. Or if you call me and say, Don, we really want to work with you guys. We work with you in three phases. Phase one, we listen to you. Phase two, we issue a strategy or a report that we think that you should execute. Phase three, if you so choose, we'll hold your hand, we'll execute with this until it gets results. I'm much more likely to go with the second plan, the, the second option than the first option. Why? Because I, I wasn't confused in terms of trying to figure out how you're gonna help me. You never wanna confuse your customers and giving them a plan on how we're going to execute this solution for you is a great way to help them not be confused. We have a mantra at StoryBrand, if you confuse, you lose. If the answer to confusion is always no. So if I'm saying to myself, how is it going to work with this company? What does it look like? How much is it going to cost? When do we have to do it? What do I have to put together? If you haven't answered those questions for me in a very simple plan that I can understand, my answer to doing business with you is likely no.
0: And Don, do you think that plan is something that's in a proposal after a face-to-face meeting, after a phone call? Or it's like up front and center on your corporate brochure, on your website. Is that early on before someone's made a decision to, move, to, a decision to seriously consider you?
1: Scott, it's a terrific question. It, all of the above. Hmm. The more you, re, you know, marketing and messaging is an exercise in memorization. And the way you get somebody to memorize something is you repeat the same thing over and over and over and over. So I would say in that first elevator pitch, you want to say, here's how we work with you. Here's the three steps. Then you hand them a business card. They go to your website. The website repeats the same steps. Then you send them a proposal. The proposal repeats the same steps. Then when your sales rep follows up and goes through the proposal, they repeat the same steps. And then finally, it's usually about the eighth time a customer hears the exact same information. They begin to metabolize the information. So if they have to hear it eight times, you got to say it 50 times.
0: I mean, Don, it seems you know intuitive and wise. as I look at you know our company and large companies, I mean it is one of those says easy does hard types of advice to think that every sales rep, every piece of engagement, podcast, email, webinar, web page, can follow a process, but you're saying the best companies do it. Can you think of a brand that you work with or know of that has that mastered?
1: Uh, Well, there's a few of them. Dave Ramsey is one. We've worked with the people at Chick-fil-A. If you're in North America, you know uh, the power of Chick-fil-A. They treat their customer as the hero and help them experience a climactic scene uh, where other franchises don't. And so if you look at Burger King, they're doing about 1.5 million per store per year. McDonald's is doing 2.5 million per store per year. Chick-fil-A does 5.2 million per store per year. And the reality is at the point of purchase at the cash register, they are resolving an external internal and philosophical problem for their customer and their customer doesn't even know it's happening, but it's created brand evangelists that are crazy about this brand. We're doing a lot of work with Chick-fil-A right now with Mark Miller there in their IP department, their learning department. And he's telling me their biggest problem right now is their freezers aren't big enough to hold the amount of chicken that they're actually selling. (laughs) That's their number one problem. Wouldn't that be a great problem for all of us to have?
0: Yeah. In fact, Tim Tassopoulos, who I think is their current president, is a good friend of our CEO, Bob Whitman.
1: Tim is wonderful. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah, we like, we he's like a everybody. Over big
0: there. champion of our brand, and I eat my share of the chickens. I'm helping to deplete their freezers, as are my three sons. Okay, Don, let's, let's review. Uh, story brand, seven-part framework. One, a character. Two, has a problem. Three, and meets a guide. Four, who gives them a plan. Five, that helps or to five and calls them to action. Customers do not take action unless, unless the challenges There are challenges to take them to action. Talk about that action piece.
1: Well, the the reality is in a movie, uh, heroes don't take action on their own. They have to be forced to take action through something called an inciting incident. You know, uh, a a bomb goes off. uh, You know, the the girlfriend uh, walks away with another guy. There's something that forces the action in the movie. The the human lesson in there for us is that people don't take action unless they're challenged to. And so many of our sales reps and our marketing material are, are what I would consider passive and asking for the sale. They'll, they'll say things on their website like, like learn more or get started. That doesn't work. What works is buy now and schedule an appointment with a deadline. You know, If our sales reps actually say, I'd like to call you next Thursday, you guys think that you would have a decision by then. I would like for you to move forward specifically with this proposal. That's the only language that actually gets into our customer's brain. There has to be a challenge for them to take action. So, you know, in the book, I go into exactly how to word those things so that they work
0: best. Okay, let's land this. Number six, step six, uh, that has a plan that helps them avoid failure. Every human being is trying to avoid a tragic ending. I mean, even, even our customers who want to execute on their, their top, you know, wildly important goals or build a great culture, they're trying to avoid failure. That's
1: right. And the the two actually, the last two go together. They're trying to avoid failure and they're trying to experience a success. Studies show that 40% of people are motivated more by avoiding something negative than they are by experiencing something Mm. positive. Mm. Another 40% of people are actually motivated by experiencing something positive more than they are motivated by experiencing Mm. something negative. Mm. And then the other 20% are actually motivated by both. So what this means is if we haven't put stakes in our story, that is, if we haven't said here's what can be won or lost based on whether or not you do business with us, we are not going to do much business. If you watch a movie and the stakes are removed, it turns out the bomb that the guy is trying to disarm is a dud that when it goes off, it's not going to hurt anybody. And then you got 90 minutes of somebody trying to disarm a dud bomb. You've ruined the movie. If nothing negative can happen to me, if I don't do business with you, I'm not going to do business with you. And if I can't experience a beautiful resolution to the problem that I'm experiencing by doing business with you, I'm also not going to do business with you. There have to be stakes in our story.
0: I think you accomplished it, but step seven is in ends in success. Never assume people understand your brand can change their lives. Tell them, don't assume it. Any advice on how we should be more clear on convincing people that we can help them avoid failure or achieve success?
1: Yeah. One of the things that we always want to ask ourselves is what's the climactic scene that this customer is looking for? Scott, I'll give you an example. I walked into a suit store recently. I've got a bunch of suits, but I'm filming these daily videos that are just little three to five minute bits of business advice. So it's, you know, hiring, firing, all that kind of stuff. And I'm noticing as I'm filming these things that I'm wearing suits that look good now, but five years from now are probably going to be dated. So I walk into a suit store and I say, I need a black sport coat and the person said, the, the sales rep says, okay, you know, uh, what size and, you know, do you need the whole suit or you need this or that? And I ended up, you know, kind of him and hawing with him and I bought a thousand dollars sport coat. If that, if that sales rep would have actually said to me, what do you need it for? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. I would have simply said, I've got to film these videos. They cost about a quarter million dollars by the time I'm done. It's very expensive. So I don't want to have to refilm them in five years. I need timeless outfits. And I was thinking of going with black. That sales rep, knowing that what I was buying was not a sport coat, but the climactic scene of 260 videos I don't have to refilm, he could have laid out $10,000 worth of the right kind of tie, the right kind of shirt, the right kind of sport coats. And I probably would have pulled out my debit card or credit card. I probably would have bought those because He would have known, I'm actually not buying a sport coat, I'm buying a climactic scene. If you don't know the successful ending that your customer is actually looking for, and you think you're only selling a product, you're not going to sell that customer very much. Once you understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, that climactic scene in the story that resolves all their problems, you're going to be able to put together a package of products and tools that are much more robust, and they're going to be much more likely to buy them.
0: Well, Don, we know that you would have used your debit card, not your credit card, because Dave Ramsey would have forbidden you from using your credit card, right?
1: (laughs) That's actually true, and uh, if Dave's watching, I would have used a debit card. (laughs) Well said.
0: Hey, Don, let's end this conversation. I want you to speak to the person who's responsible for brand marketing marketing. Business development in every company around the world, right? Let, let, let's pick the one at Franklin Covey, Jennifer Coons. Jennifer is the director of all of our business development and digital. She owns social, our websites, she owns our marketing automation, all those types of things. I happen to know that she and her team are in the midst right now of redesigning our website. It happens every four or five years, it's a kind of can be a black hole. What advice would you give Jennifer Coons, who is the every woman, every man? an organization is that linchpin of initial customer engagement. Are there four or five things you might say as you're looking at your emails, your website, your templates? What should she do to make sure that they follow these seven parts of this framework?
1: Well, we've, we've made it super easy. And what Jennifer would want to do is bring in, there's a number of ways to do it. She could just read the book. That's the cheapest way, or listen to the audio book. Then there's a piece of software that the book directs you to That helps you clarify your message. Once you do that, you have seven pieces of messaging, seven sentences, if you will, the words of which you want to repeat in all your marketing collaterals. So those landing pages, those websites, those brochures, those email drip campaigns, they all need to come from a central piece of messaging. Imagine running for office and trying to discipline your candidate to just keep talking about these things. That that one piece of paper gives you the ability to do that. The book will guide you there. Or you can hire a private workshop facilitator. Our facilitator will come in and get your team on the exact same page uh, all in a day and a half. You actually just get it done really quickly. But that's the key. The key is to getting that messaging down so it's succinct and repeatable. And then being disciplined and executing that and continuing to use those, those seven uh, messaging points. To me, it's, it's you know I, we meet so many people. I, I'm a fly fisherman. I love to fly fish. And I'm watching these businesses, they're out there on the boat, they got all the gear, they're throwing their line in the water, and there's not a single hook on the end of that line. And if you don't have those seven messages down, you're not fishing with what fish actually eat. You're just throwing stuff in the water, hoping to catch a fish. It works a lot better if you actually use the seven messages that the fish actually eat.
0: Don, I'm not sure if this story is true or not, but I read either in the Wall Street Journal or somewhere that during Donald Trump's campaign against Hillary Clinton, his temptation to always be off message was so easy for him because he's apparently not the big secret, Easily distracted. And one of the yeah. reasons why building the wall became such a central point in his theme were his advisors thought he could stay on message for that because he was a builder. He was, you know, used to that type of uh uh, construction and such and it became a central theme of the campaign not because he was so passionate about that but because he could stay on topic and it became a bigger theme for his voters than perhaps even it was for him at the time well in the
1: venn diagram of an actual immigration policy and an actual policy that anybody could remember uh uh Donald Trump was the only one who really nailed it in a sense. Yeah. I mean, Jeb Bush wrote a book on immigration. Donald Trump had a tagline, and right. the tagline beat the right. book. Right. Uh, he really took the country through an exercise in memorization. If you say, what's the one thing Donald Trump want to do with America? you would say, People would say, Bill, make America great again. Right. He put that in white letters on red trucking hats, and he repeated it a thousand times. Yeah. He made people chant it back to him. He caused them to memorize it. Hillary Clinton had 120 things that she would do with America. I'm sure they were all great things, but I can't list one because 120 is too many bowling balls. You just can't underestimate the power of a simple message repeated. And the reason is it's the only message that actually gets into the human brain so that they can remember it. When they go to the polls to vote, they're going to vote not on what they believe is the best policy. They're going to vote on the only policy they remember because they don't remember, they're they're comparing this thing that I know what it is to this other thing that seems vague and elusive. The answer to confusion is always no. So, you know, is Donald Trump a a disciplined communicator or an undisciplined communicator? I would say he's very undisciplined in terms of obeying his impulses, but he is extremely binary in his thinking. There's a clear villain, a clear bad guy, a clear good guy, and a clear thing that we've got to do and like it or not that's effective leadership you know may not be the direction that you want to go but if you have a vision and you can't communicate that vision your vision is pretty useless you've got to be able to communicate it in such a way that it can get into people's brains and guide and direct their thinking and that's what Donald Trump did
0: well said uh, let's finish off don in our last minute here if an organization has been listening today they've read your book they've seen the software but they've got a bigger opportunity that might require actually some work with your firm. How does someone engage with your organization?
1: There's two places to go. One is StoryBrand.com. The name of my company is StoryBrand. So just go to StoryBrand.com, and you can either uh, use our online tools, you can uh, can come to visit us in Nashville for a workshop, or we can send you a facilitator, which we do all the time. The other thing for now, though, is i go to BusinessMadeSimple.com, it's a free daily video that I just send out, and it's three to five minute versions of the kind of stuff that we've been talking about. It's business school in bite sized chunks. In fact, we even just heard from an Ivy League professor who's showing these videos to their class, but it's all free, and it's at businessmadesimple.com.
0: So, Don, you've written several best selling books. Story brand is, I think, is changing the landscape of how companies hopefully message to their clients, make their client the hero, not their brand. What's next for you?
1: Well, we're, we're continuing. I'm actually writing a book right now, Scott, that you would love called Kill Your Mission Statement. <laughs> oh, and, what? <laughs> you know, I think it's going to sell about 10,000 copies, but those are going to be my 10,000 favorite people in the world <laughs> because there's something about unifying a team around a core mission and inviting a team into a story that, to me, just gets me so energized. I think the way that you start a movement begins with the words that you use. And so I want to talk about why. of mission statements don't work. They're very boring and nobody remembers them. And how to actually create a mission statement, core values and guiding principles that get your entire team uh, showing up early, staying late, super excited because you have uh, articulated a way to help them change the world. I can't wait for that book. I, I couldn't be more excited about it. Hopefully it'll be out next year.
0: Gosh, I'd love it if you'd interview me for that book. You know, the mission statement builder is the most trafficked of all the pages on the entire Franklin Covey website when there's thousands of pages. But I think we would agree, too few people craft them thoughtfully. There's often aspirational, they're not practical, they're written in fluid language. I'd love to be a part of that process. So call on Franklin Covey and endorse No, I'm going to call
1: book. you. I'm going to call you because I think you and I both have something in common. We're talking to really beautiful people who want to do really beautiful things in the world. Yeah. They're just having trouble uh, getting their message out. So I'm grateful that you're a fellow warrior in helping them do that.
0: Donald Miller, author of Story Brand, Building a Story Brand of Numerous Books. Thanks for joining us on leadership. We'll look forward to helping you with your next book on mission statements and great success with your firm. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Don. And thank you for joining us. Hope you found this to be super practical. I see Jen Coons behind the camera taking copious notes. So hopefully you'll see the revision of Franklin Covey's website. Be super simple and very clear, focused on our clients' needs and not all the things that we'd love to tell you that we think are important, but not really there to solve your problems. We hope to see you back next week. As always, visit franklincovey.com. Subscribe to On Leadership. It's complimentary. Each week comes out on Tuesdays in an email to your inbox. It includes not just this video, but it also includes a tool that we call from our broad leadership tool set from all of our solutions. A blog written by me. You also can consume it in podcast format. Head out to iTunes, Franklin Covey, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast, and subscribe. Rate it, rank it, review it, give us feedback, and we hope to see you back here next week for On Leadership.